Hello, this is Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician by background, and I lead the adoption and training teams here at Allidaid. Welcome to the ACO Show. And this is Josh Israel. Glad to be here with you today, Joe. And I'm a psychiatrist by background and a medical director here at Allidaid. Given that this is our first podcast, we wanted to give a little background of what the ACO Show is. you know, we both work at a company called Allidaid that uh, sets up, manages, uh, supports physician-led ACOs all around the country. And this show is about how you do all those things, but also value-based care in general. A lot of people are trying to do a lot of different things to transform the healthcare system. I think everybody agrees that we don't live and work in an optimal system, and accountable care is one take on trying to guide some of that transformation. So we hope you'll find our experiences with it interesting. And for our first podcast, we're going to be talking to Farzad Mostashari, uh, the CEO of Allidaid, but also somebody who's worn many hats within this system previously, including the director of the Office of the National Coordinator in the Obama administration, um, as well as working in the New York City Public Health Department. And I think you'll find, as we did, that he's an incredibly engaging speaker and really has a great way of giving the 30,000-foot view of healthcare, so not just the specifics of the change, but why we're doing this and, and what it all means. And additionally, I think there's something for everybody in this episode because he talks about how you start a company, how you transition uh, from government to the startup world, um, and also everything that goes into to running a company at this stage. So without further ado, enjoy. Enjoy. Farzad Mostashari, the CEO and co-founder of Allidate. Hi, Farzad. Hey, Josh. I have a lot of questions for Farzad today, and I think for people listening, one of the first questions might be, how do you pronounce your name? And hopefully I've answered that one correctly. You did. Nice job, Josh. All right. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you were doing before Allidate? Yeah. um, I was reflecting recently, um, and and of course, like most of my reflections, it ends up on Twitter, (laughs) Uh, about 10 years ago. Tom Frieden and I wrote a perspective piece in JAMA that was had this kind of snarky title. It was healthcare, as if health mattered. And we were saying, look, the way we do healthcare as an industry in this country has very little to do with maintaining health and a lot to do with getting paid. Um, and what we posited was that there are all these problems in healthcare, but fundamentally we need to do three things, right? Three things. And my career the past 20 years has been really in one way or another about those three things. And those three things that we need to do differently is one, we need to pay differently for care. Two, we need to have the technology and the data to bring the invisible into visible, to bring population health to in, into light. And third, uh, and this is the most underappreciated, I think, of the three, we need to work on the workflows of healthcare to integrate using technology new delivery models to be able to meet those payment model needs. So uh, what I've been doing for the past 20 years is tackling one piece after the other, right? Like grabbing onto you know, the technology piece um, as National Coordinator for Health IT and 
in charge of rolling out the High Tech Act um, and really trying to see like, can we get to population health? Can we save lives by focusing on the right technology? And like, no, you know, like, no, that's not enough. And then the second is, is like, well, how about the workflows and how about we get, you know, people to help the, the practices change their workflows in the Regional Extension Center program. And this iteration that we're doing now is really putting it all together um, uh, in uh, bringing into proximity kind of into a triple strand of DNA, right? New payment models plus the data and technology that's meant for population health plus the workflow and coaching that all that all goes together. And what was it you're doing at the New York City Department of Public Health? So I started. That was my first job out of fellowship. I, I did the CDC's Epidemic Intelligence Service Fellowship. I went right into, um, after my intro medicine training program, uh, actually, Josh, you were there, you were there with me at Mass General. Uh, as you know, I went right back into, um, into public health and population health, working for the CDC. Um, and then I spent 10 years in the New York City Health Department, wonderful, wonderful years at a, at a time when that city health department was just, you know, so innovative and, and doing so many amazing things. And the reason why the New York City Health Department, that was kind of the golden day, golden era, it's still an amazing health department, it was before it was since, but there's something really special about those years from say 2002 to 2010, because there was for the like first time anyone could remember, like an incredibly activist commissioner of health and mayor of health who were, mayor of health, that's funny. Appropriate though. Right? Yeah. And a mayor of the city who said, we're gonna answer one question and one question only, how do we save the most lives, right? And it was this, so it was this kind of animating uh, focus of how do we save the most, every single day, you know, go to work, how do we save the most lives? And that's what, uh, that clarity of purpose, that clarity of outcomes is is like, to me is 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 like what I'm trying to what I'm trying to recreate every single day. Farzad, you know, you know this, but everyone listening may not that this is really near and dear to my heart because I spent time both in clinical medicine, but then also in government, like you did at a lower level, um, but then into the startup world. And one of the things that I'm the most curious about is. What's different about that? You talked about the continuity from being at the New York Health Department, then in the federal government, now to the startup space, but what are the major differences that you see? Um, it is uh, surprisingly similar, I would say, at least the kinds of government work that, that I had the fortune of doing, there were, it felt startup-y, it was like starting things that hadn't been done before, fighting your way through. Um, the the inertia of of complex systems that don't wanna don't wanna change right um, but can be motivated to change given the right situations um, obviously you know it's, there are a lot of things that are a lot easier about a startup than than trying to navigate say mm -hmm. you know federal hiring bureaucracy right, right. Um, uh, but the the fundamentals of leadership of like setting a mission that people can believe in and service. Um, and setting uh, outcomes for yourself that that would have massive impact on the lives of people, those are those are very similar. What about developing a business model out of that? <laughs> yeah, I was I was I was telling a, a finance person today that I'm practicing without a license <laughs> uh, on the finance side. Um, 
you know, I don't want to I don't want to sound corny here, but the most important thing is making sure, particularly in healthcare, um, it, making sure that you know, like the old adage, like what's good for GM is good for America, right? Like that's obviously not true, largely written, mm-hmm. right? But not anymore. but but I want to make a business where it's really true that what's good for Allidate is good for America, right? That if we succeed, that that society is better off, that we've created enormous value, that the policymakers are happy. And that, you know, actually like it can sound in a, in a way like um, idealistic and Pollyannish, but I would argue it's actually really good business in healthcare to not peg your business model on some arbitrage, some loophole, some overpayment, mm-hmm. something that you're going to worry, like go to bed at night worrying that the regulators are going to do the right thing <laughs> and cut you off, right? Like I want the regulators, if the regulators do the right thing, for us to be better off. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's our business model, right? It's just fundamentally like doing better things for patients so that healthcare costs less and doctors are happier, right? Like that's what we were looking for. And how does the alignment piece come into that? Uh, particularly at the provider level. And, and I ask this because when I was coming out of business school looking at this space, that's the first thing that struck me about Allidade, Um that you're aligned with the incentives for the docs, for the system. And um, could you just expound specifically on the alignment yeah. side? So there's, you know, um, business models, right? Um, there is, for Allidade, let's let's assume for the moment that that our um, activities are the same, right? Our activities Mm -hmm. would be, we give doctors and practices, we give them access to contracts and regulatory, we'd help with a regulatory problem, you know, challenges navigating the regulatory system and applications, we provide you with data, we provide you with this great technology, we uh, do coaching, right? You could pay for that, right? You could set up a business model, and, and some have, where you get paid for your consulting fees. You get mm-hmm. paid for your software. You get paid license fees. You get paid whatever, right? You get paid fee for service, essentially. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want, I, I, I wanted us to be on the damn hook, mm-hmm. right? Like, if we don't actually succeed in the outcomes of bending the cost curve and getting good quality, and right, that, that we would actually not make money. Right, and it fundamentally strikes me as a bad. It's conflicted, and and it's one of the reasons why we do so well in our partnerships with docs is like when once you say to them that we only make money if we succeed in reducing cost of care and you getting paid, right? All those concerns around like, well, are you overcharge? You know, overcharge me? Do I need all this? Do I, you know, like? What's this worth, right? It's like, we're picking up the cost of it up front. And in return, we will share with you, we have skin in the game, we're at risk, whatever you wanna call it. That to me is 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 magic. Um, the, the only problem with it is that it is, uh, someone's gotta pay for all of the work and technology and the data and the interfacing and all that stuff up front. And we don't think that primary care docs in our society are the ones who have the deep pockets who should be you know paying for the two million dollar startup cost of an ACO so we pay for that 
Um, and that means that our business model um, means that we front we have to front load the expenses and have the patience and the backers and the pockets mm-hmm. to be able to wait the two or three or four years it might take to become profitable at the ACO level. It's so rare that businesses really align themselves with the people that they're serving and are really yeah. on the hook. Yeah. Um, and you know, as you describe it, it's just so elegant and obvious. Um, do you find that some providers just don't believe that that's really the system, that they just remain suspicious that there must be some catch? <laughs> well, I did, I did have, I, I did have one, uh, one ACO and the doc was like, you seem like a smart guy. <laughs> But like, really, mm-hmm. you're like you're spending all this money on like our our ACO because you think you're gonna get paid at the end. Like, I'm I'm not sure I have like that kind of faith that it's gonna happen. Like, why are you do like, are you really so dumb? You know, it's like that you're paying these millions of dollars. And and I was like, no, I I really believe I really believe. Um, so I I think there there is um, sometimes the the like wow you you have a you have a you know high tolerance for risk buddy <laughs> but but i do think that is yes we you have to have a have to have a tolerance for risk and when you in talking about risk and taking that on you know personal risk uh, something that always <laughs> fascinates me is origin stories yeah. i know folks in the startup space really uh, love that personal mythology can you mm-hmm. talk through how you found other people to come along with you and do this? Yeah. Um, so, so I was at Brookings, and after ONC, after ONC, right? I, I I left on ONC on Friday during the government shutdown, and I started Brookings on Monday, working on the ACO Learning Network. I'm just going to say the ONC, the Office of National Coordinator. That's right. So I was the I was the czar, as the chairman of my subcommittee said. He was like, "You're the you're the health IT czar. Why can't you fix it?" <laughs> so, so I left that right. uh, and went to Brookings, really thinking about this problem. And and I didn't know I was gonna build the be the one to build the company to fix it, but I knew there was this opportunity here to to take. Like I could see these these independent uh, ACOs, physician-led ACOs, it just made more sense, right? Like, if you have a hospital ACO and you're like, we're gonna, re- if you reduce your own admissions, you get half the money back. Like, how does that compute, right? It's maybe it does compute, right? You can close down some wings and reduce, you know, have variable costs versus mm-hmm. fixed costs. Like, there are ways, I, I I'm sure, but it's just complicated. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're going to primary care docs that are 4% of healthcare costs and 85% of, of influence over the dollar, like they're obviously better situated to succeed. And I started at Brookings and I was like, we wrote a paper with Mark McClellan, The Paradox of Primary Care Leadership, where we said the, the, the primary care docs have all this potential power, but they don't realize it. And someone, like all they need, you know, all they need is regulatory help, contracting help, technology, financing. data, financing, and coaching. Mm-hmm. That's all they need. <laughs> Just, that. <laughs> Just that. Just that. Like, but, but like, I, you know, you can give them that, right? And I kept waiting and like, like, well, when is someone gonna launch the company that helps primary care docs across the country form and operate 
their own ACOs. And after about six months of this, we published a toolkit, hold a conference, you know, did all this kind of stuff. And I was look, kept looking around being like, this is so obvious. This is such like, and the, the, the crazy thing is four years later, there is still just Allidade, right? Who's really, really focused on uh, what we do, that bringing this full panel mm-hmm. of, of services going at risk and addressing the, not Medicare Advantage, but the twice as large Medicare fee-for-service market. Maybe there's another group out there. Power to you if you are. I wish you all the best of luck. We need fellow travelers here. But it's incredible to me that this idea that what seems blindingly obvious to you, like surely someone's going to start this tomorrow, four years later, is, is not obvious to the rest of the world. And you always thought that would be private sector? You never thought that that would be something that... Uh, Here's what I love. I mean, I've been, I was in government, right? I was in government for 15 years. We, Matt, Kendall, and I mm-hmm. dispersed, you know, a couple billion dollars of grant money. And I've been on the receiving end of grant money. I've been on the giving end of grant money, contracts, whatever. It's not a business model. It's a fake business model. Mm-hmm. So the idea that if I just, like, if I do my job... And, and we find great people and we find great docs and we help patients, that that could be self-sustaining. Like you control your own destiny. It doesn't matter what Congress wants to do. It doesn't matter if the, you, know, you fall out, if you get a bad score or whatever. Like you control your destiny, that you can use the profits from that to help more people. That's like, what a... What a gig. What an yeah. awesome, right? What a, what a thing, the market. <laughs> <laughs> So back to that question then from Brookings to oh, yeah. inception like how so did that, that was, team so, come together? Yeah, so that so the first thing was like am I going to am I like the first person to recruit to the team was me right like right. I was waiting for someone else to do it and I was like <laughs> fine all right I'm like I've been recruited so I'm going to do this and the, the, the obvious next person that I would want by my side was a person who'd been by my side for 10 years who was Matt Kendall who was my lieutenant in New York who was my sec right hand at ONC, running you know running this incredible regional extension center program, um, and so I said to Matt, like, hey Matt, like we would start to have breakfast and we just talk about like how would you do it, how would you structure it, what would the thing be, and I was like, come on Matt, like, join me, let's do this, let's do this, right? And the deadline was July thirty one, and it was like February, mm-hmm. and I was like, you know, Matt's getting kind of tight <laughs> <laughs> to launch it and then have ACOs in that first year. To meet the contract deadline. To meet the contract deadline. And Matt was like, well, when we started the Regional Extension Center program, we set a goal that we would help 100,000 primary care docs get to meaningful use. And we're at, whatever it was at that time, 97,000. And he was like, I can't leave until we hit 100,000. So... That's how you know you're asking the right person. That's, That's right. how. Yeah. You... <laughs> so he was still at ONC. He was at ONC, and and he hit a hundred thousand, and then you know left, and and we now there was two of us, and then we knew we needed a an ACE technologist, and um, my 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 friend uh, Todd Park had back in ONC days had had told me about this guy uh, Edwin Miller who was at Athena who built Athena Clinicals, and I. I remember calling him while Matt and I were waiting for some, you know, visit with some uh, practice, 
And I just described, I was like out of the blue, like I hadn't talked to him in years. I started describing what we were doing. And he just, he was in the parking lot of his workplace in Miami. And he said, I'm in. I was like, wait, what? And you met him? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it wasn't like a cold call. But he was like, I'm, we hadn't talked about anything. Like he was just like, I'm in, I'm in. Um, So that's the, a surprising number of folks at Allidade. Um, it feels like they have been waiting to be have a chance to do this. That's awesome. That's a pretty good orange origin story. So I'm going to segue from from uh, Edwin to some of the nuts and bolts as it applies there. Allidade works with doctors, whatever EHR they're on. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh God. You know, how did you come to that decision? <laughs> that trying to standardize EHRs across the system. Yeah. Uh, well. Uh, I remember I wanted to write a blog that was like the 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 marvel of a dancing bear <laughs> is that it dances at all. Um, and this was in reference to EHR interoperability, mm-hmm. right? Like we had worked for, you know, five years uh, to not just have adoption of EHRs, but to have standardization so that you could actually have different docs or on different EHRs, you know, and, and share data with each other um but it was like once i was on the outside it was so much harder than you know than i had hoped um but at the same so it wasn't true the idea that we would like standardize like pick two or pick three right uh, was attractive the problem is that's not how communities of docs are structured you don't have like in whatever, uh, Wichita, Kansas, mm-hmm. uh, conveniently a group of 20 practices all using Athena, mm-hmm. right? Athena has, I don't know, a couple, per- three, four percent market share spread out across the country. Mm-hmm. So when we did our very first recruitment and we got into a conference room in Delaware with a bunch of great docs, right? Well, it turned out that those, you know, 12 practices had six different EHRs. Yeah. So, we were like, what, we're gonna tell this great practice no, because we don't, we can't work with that EHR? No, we'll do the hard work on our side to make it work. And what turned, what started off as like a huge pain in the butt um, became after a while just like, yeah, we can do that. We, yeah, we got 60, you know, EHRs to 60 different, you know, six different EHRs and practice management systems. And now we just do that. How many states is Allidade in now? Um, what is is it? Is it Thursday today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're I think we're in twenty three, but uh, expanding pretty quickly. And it's mostly independent physicians rather than provider groups that are associated with hospitals. And you mentioned some of the reasons for that, but is that by design or is that just where the untapped market was when you started the company? No, very much. Like like um, you want to have partners, ideally, who make money by working with you. And the problem of trying to do value-based care with um, groups that lose money as you get savings is that it's hard for them to go through this valley and like lose money, lose money, lose money before you know they come out the other end where they're making money. And independent primary care docs are the ones who uh, you know, they, they can make money 
through more good primary care services and more highly reimbursed primary care services on the way to making more money by reducing hospitalizations and you know, saving money for the system. So um, it's been quite deliberate, the strategy of uh, independent practices. Now, our segments have now expanded. So what started off as mostly 1Z, 2Z, 3Z practices, now we have federally qualified health centers that are independent practices, right? But they're they're they're, they're very specific, very very um, special breed in rural health clinics. Uh, we have multi specialty groups now. We have you know hundred doc groups uh, that are multi specialty groups. We have IPAs. So the the fundamentals, the economic fundamentals of going to practices who um, can kind of they're not the problem. <laughs> they're they're not the problem, right? Like they're not the ones who are causing most of the increase in healthcare costs. Um, is is the jujitsu move here, where you go to people who under the fee for service system were the pawns, where the low you know got the lowest, even though they created enormous value, received the least because they didn't have market power. And now you advance your pawn, right? Seven. Uh, and, and all of a sudden it's a queen and you're the most powerful piece on the board. Mm-hmm. And that's what I feel like mm-hmm. like we're doing. You, you spoke a bit about the operational side, about why you go you know, uh, to one segment versus the other. And uh, in the interest of full disclosure, in my role, I see the practices from the very beginning when they join Allidate or join an ACO or an ACO is forming. And something that I've always wondered about is um, how do you view geographic distribution in a state? Uh, some of our states that we operate in, the practices are spread well apart. So the issue is not so much whether they're all in the same EHR, but do they these practices don't know each other at all? We're trying to create a community within an ACO. Um, was that part of your initial thinking? Do you do you think about building those communities among our, our providers? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I think the one of the things I I didn't appreciate earlier in my kind of quality improvement career was this this um, network uh, idea, right? So when I was in the New York City Health Department, we did the primary care primary care improvement project. It was the PCIP, my group, right? We had like fifty people, and then it was these like two hundred independent practices. They we didn't establish any connections between the practices. It was hub and spoke. We were in the middle. And there were these 200 spokes that went out, and we serviced all these practices, right? right? But then sometimes we'd get the docs together for some for whatever reason, and I'd see them like clumping together <laughs> and talking together, and like they would come early for like crappy, you know, orange juice, and they would leave late, and they would be talking about like, how do you get this billing code paid, and how did you hire that office manager, and what do you do when this right? And they were like, they were desperately trying to connect to each other. And then sometimes you saw like with the Beacon Community Program that we also set up like in Grand Junction, Colorado, like you saw these groups like fusing together almost where they created an identity that was powerful. And I realized like that's the that's the missing piece of when the way we were thinking about payment policy being like pay for performance, mm-hmm. right? Like you have an independent practice and if they do a good job, they get a pat on the head and you give them an extra five bucks, right? Like that's P for P. The difference here is these are 
independent practices who are choosing to say, I will be accountable for the total cost of care for this population that isn't just my patients, because I'm too small, right? If you wanna have a risk pool that's big enough, has 5,000, 10,000 patients in it, it can't be just me. So it's, I gotta be in this pool with other people, but I wanna choose, I wanna pick who's in the pool with me, right? I wanna pick who's in the boat with me. I don't want a slacker, I don't want some, right? I want people who are gonna be pulling hard and I want there to be governance. I want there to be transparency. I want there to be accountability. I want there to be competition. I want there to be collaboration. That connection between the practices is everything. Now you asked about geography. Kansas, it takes yeah. like 18 hours <laughs> to drive yeah. to all of our practices in Kansas. But they have one of the most tightly knit, connected mm -hmm. communities of physicians in Kansas than, than we have anywhere. So it's not so much geography, but it is community. And was that always um, something you saw Allidade serving that function? Or was that, you, know, you talked about that happening with the primary care improvement, but was that yeah. a kernel of the Allidade? Because I'm always struck, most of my medical career was in hospitals, all of it was in hospitals, but my dad had a uh, independent practice in Westerville, mm -hmm. Ohio, mm -hmm. and the only networking doctors are bad networkers anyway he did was through so being at a hospital he had right. privileges at a hospital right. so he and knew. that lounge right that, right that exactly doctor's lounge. the yeah. doctor's lounge like once that's one of the i think unintended consequences of the hospitalist movement you know yeah you get tickets, I, I, I <laughs> tickets that, into the club yeah. i joke that uh bob wachter you know <laughs> i do became a became an expert in, in health it and wrote this book the digital mm -hmm. doctor i i, I teased him that I should write a book about the hospitalist <laughs> and uh, uh, you know judge judge that movement by you know the, the unintended consequences it has caused and one of them is that the doctors don't go to the hospital anymore mm. um, and not only do they lose the connection to their patients and the patients to them and their course and their post-acute course and so forth uh, but also to each other to the other docs I think that that is a particularly in kind of small town uh, USA that was a big thing. How does that golf, golfing alone? <laughs> Wednesday mornings. <laughs> What's the? Uh, that's a great question about what. Look, where do you see Allidade and other players in the ACO space, um, particularly in the on the independent side, relative to hospitals, competitors, sworn enemies? No, What's no, the, no. I, I actually, I, 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 I think there's a common misconception. Perhaps I. Um, fan the flames, right, by by talking up how well-suited doctors are to succeeding in independent practice and succeeding ACOs. Uh, but it's not about pitting one kind of doctor against another kind of doctor or one kind of, you know, practice against, you know, the hospital or whatever. I think fundamentally we live in a world right now where everyone's kind of in the middle of like, are you, you know, there's a, there's a bell curve distribution of, you know, value, right? And it's pretty much a bell curve. Um, but we're moving through every decision practices are making, consciously or unconsciously, and sometimes not doing anything is making a decision, right? The, the healthcare community is being um, pulled into two opposite directions, like, like you know, filings to two magnets. One direction is towards higher value. 
and the other direction is towards monopoly and market power. Mm. And groups are, are, are sorting themselves. And you know, by definition, if you're charging rent, if you're charging higher prices simply because you're bigger and you have market power and you can demand it, right? You are by definition low value. Right. You haven't earned that 180% of Medicare, right, fee schedule. Um, and you're moving in one direction and you're throwing in your lot with the monopolist or whatever, right? And then on the other hand, you'll have the primary care docs, the gastroenterologists, the rheumatologists, the ophthalmologists, the post-acute providers, the labs, the home health providers, the hospice providers, the rehab hospitals, and the hospitals, and the DME, right? You'll have the people who have said, we're going to go in the other direction. That the way we're going to win is going to be, we're going to be the higher value guys. So that to me is, it's not, it, like I am looking for partners. I'm looking for a hospital who says, mm -hmm. I want to partner with you on reducing the cost of my bundle, right? I'm in. I'm going to do this. We're going to take this on. We're going to have bundles. We're going to be very efficient. Now I need from you, the second that patient hits my ER, I'd love to know what their history was before because now I'm accountable for this patient. The second that they leave, I want you to know. I want you to know everything there is to know about this patient when I discharge them instead of dragging my feet, giving you a you know event notification when the, ho when the patient leaves the hospital, right? That's what I'm looking for. I'm mm -hmm. looking for partners in value. What I'm not interested in are people who think that because they have market power, they can exert undue influence and anti-competitive pressures on our independent practices. So that's a call to action for any hospitals listening in. For, it, any, it, uh, for any policymakers and uh, antitrust regulators too. <laughs> so, you know, something that always fascinates me, you, you are a uh, social media icon, let's say, in the healthcare world. An, an, an accidental tweeter. You have a blue check. You have a blue check on Twitter, which is a, a quite a, that's my only social media platform. So I, I knew on, you on Twitter before I knew you personally. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't we, know I was supposed to want one of those. Now I do. Yeah, no, you should, you should definitely want I was happy check. where I was. There's two things for, two things you should want, and I don't meet either of those. A blue check, and you should have more followers than people you follow. That's like the <laughs> oh, baller boy. indication on, on Twitter, just so you know. So shuffle my way home tonight. Uh, <laughs> so one of the people that I follow on Twitter, and I'm sure you do too, is uh, Christina Farr from mm -hmm. MSNBC. Yeah, Christy's great. Or CNBC, excuse me. And uh, she had this fantastic tweet that I'm sure you saw in June, where she said the most disruptive thing that we can do in healthcare is explain how it works in plain English. And one of the examples she used was value-based care. And she goes, I won't go through her example, although it's quite good and we can, we can link out to that. Um, but my question for you is, how would you explain value-based care in plain English? Yeah, it's, it's um, rewarding doctors and hospitals when they prevent hospitalizations. Simple as that. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the heart of it. Like, if you can do that, like, you're doing value-based care. Hmm. And what do you think about the pace of the current transition from where we are today to value-based care as you see it? I, I think that the, um, 
there are Medicare is actually continuing to push and and you know this this idea of like the peloton and the person in the front of the biker who's who's like in front and and like is creating a shield for everyone behind them that can so they can go faster right but it's tiring being out front right Medicare has been in the front of that peloton for five years now six years now and one of the questions I had was when do and you know the, the 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 employers will talk a big game at sometimes about what they're doing, but fundamentally, they the self-insured part of the market, which is huge, right? Of the, like it's 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 a huge part of of all Americans get their insurance through their employers who are assuming the total cost for for that they're self-insuring those lives. They are pretty. Un, um, uh, they are not the beneficiaries of value-based payment arrangements. Mm-hmm. They are not being well served, frankly, by when they when they say, "I want an administrative services only or TPA contract with a with an insurer." Like, just pay claims for me, right? They are not being well served in the value-based side, and a big part of our of our practices patients aren't getting the advantage of the tools, the data, the the attention, the access that they could be getting simply because they think they're getting great health insurance, right? But they're, they don't realize that, that their insurer is not able to or wanting to engage with the, the docs in these new models. So that's, that, that's the part of it that I'm seeing, like the river's flowing around that rock. Um, and, and that's where I, I, I think we need like a TPA 2.0, right? Model for someone to some some insurer to create and just like run away with a value-based market on on self-insured. You want to explain what TPA is? So uh, <laughs> the the TPA is is um, a, a group that the insurance uh, company that provides those administrative services for a self-insured employer pays claims on their behalf. It's also known as administrative services only health plans. One of the ways that Allidaid is trying to help providers give value-based care is to give them more information at the point of care. Yep. And one of the ways we do that is with what we call the Allidaid app. Which goes goes to show that we're not great at branding. <laughs> we came bad. up with yeah. the, the app. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> oh. Right, not, not too inventive, but it gets the point across. And so it, it does let the providers know if their patients have been hospitalized, if they've had their flu shots. Um, but to get the information, providers have to log into it on their computers separate from their own EHRs. And why did you choose to go that route? Yeah, so um, one, like I tried for five years to get EHRs to be pop health tools, right? Like that's what that's what our conception was, that payment models were gonna change and then meaningful use was gonna be about helping them succeed in value-based care, integrated registry, quality measurement at the point of care, decision support, structured data, right? All this kind of stuff that you're gonna need to be able to take care of populations. Well, it turns out we failed, right? The EHRs are still largely billing machines and they're not well-suited for population health. And frankly, they are not open to receiving insights and intelligence from outside uh, systems. They could, uh, but but they wanna keep their walled gardens and have a fee at the door. So uh, instead, what we said was, you know what, we're gonna bite the bullet and we're gonna create a single, and we're gonna have, you can be on any HR you want, but we're gonna have a single population health tool that is, gives you actionable 
information. It's not a like reports that you might get or you know PDFs or like how am I doing tables or whatever. It's like who do I call, right? So there is a workflow for clinical care that's fee for service, right? There's a workflow for that. You bring the patient in, you register them, you room them, you take the blood pressure, you do the med rec, you do the visit, you do the billing, right? There's a whole workflow around that visit. There's also a workflow around population health, right? You, someone goes to the emergency room, you hear about it, who's gonna, who's gonna look at that list? Someone's gotta open that every day, look to see who just left for the ER. They need to call that patient, they need to log that, that encounter, they need to check with the patient if they're feeling okay, right? And they need to bring patients in who haven't been seen. So there's entirely new workflows that are now provided by a single interface. And you can do your care management there, you can do your panel management there, you can do your huddle there to see like, oh, the patient's coming in today, what do we need to do? You can have your population explorer, my dynamic registry, right? Finally, we have it because we have to build it. And, you know, um, it's not that the, most of the providers, most of the docs, as you know, they're not the ones logging into the system, right? They're now, it's, it's like the office manager or better yet, right? There now is someone in the practice whose job it is to do either panel management, care management, setting up the visits for with, with an eye towards population health. And that's one of the statistics that we track, right? And now 80% of practices who've been with Alidate for a year are in the, someone in the practice is in the app every day. So that to me, like I would never have thought that would be possible when I was at ONC. I thought it was all gonna be the EHR. And now we're seeing like, no, actually 80% of them are using the tool every day. And once you use something every day, like then it's, <laughs> then it's real. Yeah. Where'd the name Alidade come from? Um, okay, again, I have to remember I said we're not great at branding. <laughs> <laughs> So, I don't know, I wanted something to get across this idea around the North Star because I grew to hate compliance and the idea of box checking. And like, yeah, you know, I did the things to earn the check, right? Like I checked the boxes, whether it's quality measures, whether it's meaningful use, whether it's patient set or medical home, like I just got so sick of that sick of that, like not really thinking about the intent and the goals and the outcomes that we're trying to accomplish. And so I wanted something to be like something around the North Star and navigation. And then I, I, I was like looking at, at like celestial navigation equipment, right? And there's as this one piece, as one does <laughs> yeah, as when one, does. one is right. trying to find that, that concept. And then I saw that there was like an arrow pointing to this thing called the Alidate. Uh, and of course, it, it kind of has the AL at the beginning, so it's early in the alphabet. I like that, mm. right? You want to be, you know, it's not triple A Alidate, <laughs> but um, it was, it, and, and it was, you know, I'm, I'm from Iran originally, so the, it's, the root is Al-Idad, it's Arabic, but it's, you know, when a um, thousand years ago when, <laughs> when the Muslim empire was, was uh, um, you know, uh, at the lead cutting edge of scientific advancement, uh, it was the arm that you pointed to the North Star. Um, the only problem was um, the domain name was taken. Ah, fail. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, look, who's to say how you spell Alidate? <laughs> so uh, I changed the spelling and made it A-L-E-D-A-D-E. And every person who comes to work here has to retrain their spell check. That's right. <laughs>
Well, I, I, I spent, um, as I said, five years, and I couldn't get uh, the spell check to not spell E-H-R to H-E-R. Yes. So yeah. there's still time. All right. Well, thanks so much, Farsa. It's been great. Thanks for your time. Thanks, guys.